Turn with me to 1 Timothy. Uh, hopefully you've made a little uh, earmark in 1 Timothy as we continue our sermon series uh, through this incredible, what's called a pastoral epistle. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul. It was written to a young pastor named Timothy. A lot of the letters that we read in the Bible are written specifically to churches. Uh, this is more written to a person. Uh, we'll see that in 1 and 2 Timothy and also in Titus. Uh, these are called pastoral epistles. But no matter where we, what we call them or where we find them, this is God's word. It'll never lead us astray. And what I love about 1 Timothy, it's going to give us kind of like an owner's manual of how we are to, uh, to function, how we are to live, especially as the church of the living God. This morning I want to tell you about Thomas Bilney. Uh, Thomas Bilney was known as Little Bilney. Why? Well, he was a little short fellow, a little diminutive guy, uh, of, a vertically challenged fella um, that got the moniker that I'm sure no small person wants to have, Little Bilney. Uh, that was what he was known as, being vertically challenged. He was born in the year 1495, and he had a very much of a scholarly bent to him, uh, maybe making up for some of the physical challenges uh, uh, he was an uh, incredible thinker and scholar. He studied law at Cambridge over in England and became a fellow at Trinity Hall in 1520. And this was a time around 1520 where the world was changing. What was happening in the world was incredible. I mean, Martin Luther at 1517 over in Germany nailing up those 95 theses and Calvin in Geneva and, and the world started to catch fire because they were getting God's word in their own language. They were understanding the gospel. And this beautiful thing called the Reformation was taking shape, and it would shape little Bilney as well. Uh, he didn't find peace through studying law. He didn't find the peace he longed for with becoming more and more uh, a smart in his studies. Uh, he hoped that maybe he could overcome some things in his life by becoming a lawyer, by becoming respected, a man of letters. But it wasn't until he found peace when little Bilney uh, got uh, a copy of Erasmus. Erasmus around this time, uh, probably a humanist, I don't think he was a believer, really bright guy, but what he took, he took the, the Latin Bible at the time, which called the Vulgate, and, uh, I'm sorry, he, he, I'm sorry, let me say that again. He took the Greek New Testament time and he translated it into Latin. And so uh, a lot of people could, could understand it a little bit better. And here you have Bilney, and Bilney goes to the text we're going to look at. And he looks in 1 Timothy 1, and he is going to be told that, hey, listen, there's good news. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves all your acceptance, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And here's what he wrote about this text that we're about to study some 500 years ago. He says, I chanced upon this sentence of St. Paul, oh, most sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul in 1 Timothy 1. It is a, sa a true saying and worthy of all men to be embraced that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief and principal. This one sentence through God's instruction and inward working did so exhilarate my heart being before wounded with guilt of my sins and being almost in despair that even immediately I seemed unto myself inwardly to feel a marvelous comfort and quietness. Insomuch that, and I love this, my bruised bones leap for joy. He quotes Psalm 51 there. 
And after this, the scripture became more pleasant unto me than the honey or honeycomb. Little Bilney would hear this, and he'd come to Christ. And coming to Christ, he would be a central figure in the emerging English Reformation. He would eventually be burned at the stake for believing in Christ Jesus as Lord. But before that moment, he, he led uh, to the Lord a guy named Hugh Latimer. Uh, Hugh Latimer was another uh, uh, preacher of the Reformation. And Hugh Latimer as well um, would be someone who would suffer the same fate. But it was Hugh Latimer that would change little Bilney's name to St. Bilney. I mean, the way he lived his life. And Latimer would be burnt at the stake with another pastor named Nicholas Ridley. And as they started him on fire, uh, and as they were going to burn him at the stake for believing that Jesus Christ was Lord of all, um, it would be Latimer who would say these famous words, Be of good comfort to the one burning next to him, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as it shall never be put out, even in the midst of dying, as they would hang on to the belief that Christ is Lord, the belief of what Christ has saved them from. They would say, God's going to light something here that will never be put out. St. Bilney, what he did is he found God's grace and mercy in reading 1 Timothy. God's abounding grace was displayed in his life to win others. Now, this is the whole point of the text. It's this, is that we can find the grace and mercy of God in the gospel. It's abounding grace that pours into our lives, that, that gives us not just forgiveness of sins, but life and, and life abundantly. And that not only does he pour this grace into our life, but watch this, but through us, through broken sinners, through knuckleheads, the rest of the world can know that Jesus is Lord and Savior, that others like Hugh Latimer or the others can come to know Christ Jesus. Well, as, as we looked at this point of this passage this morning, we're in the third week of a sermon series entitled For the Flourishing of the Household of God. That's what we are called, the Church of the Living God. And we're going to study through 1 Timothy. In many ways, it's an owner's manual for the church. All of God's Word is, is, is a manual for our living all of God's word is useful to us. But 1 Timothy kind of says, hey, I'm going to talk about the church here. I'm going to talk about the household of God, the church of the living God. And I want to give you some really practical things of how we are to operate. Now, here we are at King's Chapel, a fairly new church. This is so important for us to have this as our foundation. And we've, we need this. Why? Because in this text, in this book, we're going to see this is for the church to be properly run. We've got to follow these things. But it's more than just us being a holy huddle. This is for the world to be thoroughly one. This is how we are to live so the world will come to know Jesus. Last week, we looked at the fact we need sound doctrine. We need to have a foundation. We can't be going here and there. We've got to make sure. We can't be led by false teachers with false teaching. We've got to make sure we know what the gospel tells us. And also, today, we've got to have as a foundation abounding grace. We're going to see three things this morning abounding grace that saves the worst of sinners. We're going to see abounding grace displayed through sinners and abounding grace that ignites into abounding praise. So turn with me again. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, we're going to read verses 12 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. 
Paul writing to Timothy says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent or a violent man. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, the chief, numero uno. But I have received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him and eternal life. And he breaks into praise. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you for your grace and mercy to each one of us. And that Paul would say that that mercy has found what he would call the chief of sinners. And God, we thank you that you would take one who was a blasphemer, one who was a persecutor, one who was a violent man, and God, through him, changed the world and the complexion of the church. And God, although we'll never have the apostolic office that Paul did, God, we are just as much yours as Paul was. And God, we too are your ambassadors. And God, you want to change the world through the gospel through us. So God, come and speak through a broken sinner like me. Oh God, would you give us ears to hear your voice? Would you give us minds to understand your word here in 1 Timothy? Oh God, would you give us hearts that would embrace your truth? And would you give us feet that would walk in a manner worthy of your name? God, the things that I say that are wrong are merely my opinion. May they, those things fall away and be forgotten quickly. But the things that are said that are true and contain the good news of the gospel, we ask you to use those things to make us more like your son, our Savior, Jesus. And it's in his matchless name that we pray. Amen. Love this text. It talks about grace. And it talks about grace that overflows, this abounding grace. And the first thing we're going to see, abounding grace that saves the worst of sinners. Now, I see your faces most Sundays. You guys mostly sew up in church, don't know who's visiting online. But let me just remind each one of us, we're all sinners. And there's such good news. None of us are disqualified. None of us are disqualified from God's grace and mercy in Christ Jesus. The first thing we find is this, is abounding grace that saves the worst of sinners. Paul was the woat. Can I use that? Paul was the woat. All right, Tom's like, what's the woat, man? You gotta, the young people got to help you out here. It's the worst of all time. That's what the woat is. Paul was the woat, the worst of all times. He was a blasphemer. When I tell you someone is a blasphemer, who do you picture? Okay, who do you picture as a blasphemer? Right? Somebody comes to mind He's, 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 wearing, uh, he's wearing a leather jacket. He's a, he's a member of a motorcycle gang. Um, you know, he's, he's, uh, some people are nodding like, that's my picture of blasphemer as well. I mean, I don't know when you picture blasphemer what you actually have, but I, I kind of have this motorcycle gang image in my mind as a blasphemer. 
But that's not who Paul was. Paul was not an irreligious blasphemer. He was the worst kind. He was the ultra-religious blasphemer. Because why? Because he's wearing the robes of a Pharisee. He looked like a priest. He looked like those in the day that, that knew God. Those that were t- to tell you about God. I mean, those, especially for his people, that were how to live before God. So this is who he is as a blasphemer. Uh, again, not some motorcycle gang, you know, hoodlum who was irreligious. Paul was incredibly religious. I mean, he knew God's law. He studied it intently. When it came to being a Pharisee, he was like the best. He was like the most moral. So how can he say he was a blasphemer? Why? Because he was blaspheming against the name of Jesus. I mean, so much so that he was, you you claim Jesus is Savior, he's coming after you. You claim that Jesus was Lord, that he was Messiah, that he was equal with the Father, he was coming after you. And, and, And if you got caught doing that, like like Stephen did, and they stoned him, Paul would be saying, chuck that stone, man. Hit him right between the eyes. I'm holding your, his, your clothes here so you can chuck it even harder. I mean, he was a blasphemer. Why? Because he blasphemed the name of Jesus. He said, Jesus isn't the Lord of all. Jesus isn't the King of kings. and He's not the true Messiah. Now, I tell you what, when you mess with the name that is above every name, you mess with the Father. When you mess with the Son's name, you're messing with the Father's name. And there he realizes, wow, man, I was religious. I thought I knew God. But I was a blasphemer. I blasphemed the name of God. You pick on the Son, you pick on the Father. And he was a persecutor. I want to take you to Paul's own words in the book of Acts, uh, Luke has written to us this account, and he is going to tell us in Acts 25 that Paul is in front of a guy named King Agrippa, and he's going to talk about his former life. I'm going to pick up in verse 5. This is uh, actually uh, Acts 26. He says, My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among our own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. He's basically, I grew up this way. I lived this way. I was a Pharisee. Really religious. That's who I was. In verse 9, he says this, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. Deny the name of Jesus or I'll kill you. Deny his name. And in uh, raging fury against them, this violent man, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. You know, it's interesting, the road to Damascus. I'm going to tell you about that next. Um, Paul, Paul was so zealous. He was named Saul back then that he was in Jerusalem and he got permission to go to Damascus. And I just realized this study in this time around, it was like a 140 mile journey. I mean, it wasn't like around the corner. He hated Christians so much that he was going to travel a long way to round them up and make their life miserable. Uh, but as he came to realize that persecuting the church was persecuting Jesus. This is great road to Damascus experience, literally, that Paul would have. He's riding to Damascus, and all of a sudden the glory of God and Jesus would show up and knock him down and blind him for three days. 
and he would say, he would hear the voice saying, listen, dude, what are you doing persecuting me? Lord, who are you? Listen to these, listen to these words. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? It doesn't say the church. It doesn't say good people. It doesn't say followers of Jesus. It says this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Again, hit pause. You mess with the church, you mess with Jesus. You mess with the church, you mess with God's Son. How important is it? I mean, you're persecuting the church. I mean, you, you are breathing out threats against them. And Jesus says, listen, why are you persecuting me? Uh, he was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. Uh, he was a violent man. It's probably the easiest uh, a way to translate the next one. Again, he was the one who would approve Stephen's stoning. Physically, uh, he would abuse Christians, um, lead to their, their death and their imprisonment. He was violent. He, talk about a religious person. Is this not scary? Let's picture who this Saul is. This is somebody who was so zealous that he would want to kill others for their beliefs. I can't help but think of 9-11. I can't help but think of the, the, the crazies that, that get so zealous that they're going to be on uh, uh, the will of God. They're, they're going to be on a, uh, a mission from God to go wipe out Christians. And here Jesus is going to say, you're persecuting me. That's the violent man. He was the woat, the worst of all sinners. He says, I was the foremost, the chief, the first in line, the prototype. That's what he calls himself. Now, here's, here's what I find is really interesting. Paul does not say, I used to be the chief of sinners. God did incredible work in you. He says, I am, present tense, the chief of sinners. He knew redemption in Christ's blood. He knew being made new in Christ's blood. But he realized until he saw Jesus face to face in glory, he was a sinner saved by grace. Let's just embrace that and realize that the gospel makes us new. Uh, the gospel has forgiven all of our sins. The gospel separated our sins as far as the east is from the west. But we will always be sinners saved by grace until we see him face to face. We're going to wrestle with the flesh. We're going to wrestle with that nature. And Paul knew the reality. Hey, I'm a chief of sinners, even now. I got to tell you, I, I have a hard time with Paul oftentimes because he seems like super Christian. Like, dude, this guy just like seemed to do all things well. I always relate to Peter because he was a knucklehead mess that would often be the first to speak and the last to think. I mean, Peter would do some great things and immediately put his foot in his mouth. I'm like, Peter, I get. Paul, I don't. But Romans 7 will tell me the good news that Paul would realize the things I want to do, I don't. The things I hate to do, I do. And I realize he is a sinner like me. He's a woke. Um, he would say, I'm the first in line, the foremost, and uses that present time. But if he's the woke, here's the good news. The gospel's the goat. The gospel is the greatest of all time. So you got the woke and the goat. You all find it? And again, those of you who watched uh, the Michael Jordan uh, 
uh, documentary that came out. We all loved it. And the big question is, who's the GOAT? Is it LeBron or is it Michael? I mean, who is the greatest of all time? And, of course, we all know it's Michael. And so, so, but when it comes to the gospel GOAT, the greatest of all times, Paul is going to say in this, listen, this, is, this, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is the GOAT. This is the good news of the gospel. Paul is going to say five trustworthy sayings. They're all found in the, past, uh, in the uh, pastoral epistles. This is a trustworthy saying that, that deserves your full acceptance. Now, it doesn't mean the rest of it doesn't, right? It's like sometimes Jesus would say, truly, truly, I say to you. Um, that was his emphasis. I mean, this is all God's word, but he's saying, listen, this is trustworthy. Lean into this one. You don't want to miss this. Why? Because Christ came into the world. This is the incarnation. You have in this one sentence the gospel story. Christ came into the world. The incarnation. God would put on flesh. The eternal one who created the world entered the world. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. Why did he do it? He came to save sinners. This is the atonement. If you see the incarnation, he came into the world. He came on a mission to save sinners. The reason the Father sent him, this whole thing, was for rescue. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not die, but have everlasting life, shall not perish. That is the reason that God would send him into the world. The reason Christ came into the world is to seek and to save sinners. Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I love what Jesus says. Listen, I didn't come for the righteous. What does he mean by that? Well, Scripture makes clear, none of us are righteous. But if you think you could be right with God on your own, if you think you could be religious enough, good enough, moral enough, righteous enough, you'll never get it. And he says, I didn't come for those who think that they're okay. I came for those who, by God's grace, know that they're a mess. And I came for them. I came to seek and to save them and to give them life and life abundantly. How did Jesus save sinners? Through his life. He fulfilled the requirements of God. He magnified them. Through his death, he absorbed the wrath of God and through his resurrection. Now what do we have? Mercy, grace, and love. Paul will say the giving of mercy. God's, what does this mean? That God's judgment is waived. Instead of receiving God's wrath and judgment, Paul received God's mercy. Who should have gotten God's wrath? It was Paul. I mean, he's a persecutor, right? I mean, he's a blasphemer. God should be like, man, I'm going to zap, zap you right straight to hell, Paul. But instead, he was given mercy. And then this is really going to be the, 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 the waving. Uh, instead of God's wrath and judgment, he got God's mercy. God is merciful. Such good news. God is merciful for sinners who repent. But he gave him more than just mercy. He gave him overflowing of grace. If mercy is, is God's mercy to, to avoid judgment, grace is to receive God's blessings. I'm going to pour into you God's blessings, overflowing into Paul's life like Niagara Falls. I'm, going to, I'm not going to just bless you a little bit. I'm not going to just give you a little bit. I'm, going to, I'm not going to just, just give you mercy to say that, that you're not going to get hell. I'm going to give you heaven. I'm, I'm not just going to forgive your sins. I'm going to robe you in righteousness. I, I'm not just going, to, just going to clean you up. I'm going to make you my own. 
I'm not just going to share with you a little bit of love. I'm going to make you joint heirs in Christ Jesus. Everything that my son Jesus deserves as the only begotten son, everything he has earned as the only obedient son, everything, all the blessings in Christ, I'm going to give to you. I mean, this is grace overflowing. This isn't enough like, hey, there's a seat for you in the very back of the bus, but don't say a word. Listen, you know, I mean, you know, you're going to be a part of the family, but you're going to be that redhead stepchild that no one likes. I mean, no, this is going to be basically your beloved in Christ Jesus. Beloved. Beloved. No matter what the world says, no matter what this sin does, we are beloved in Christ Jesus. You know, this is overflowing grace of God that would make the chief of sinners a beloved child of the king and joint heirs with Christ. How in the world can you share Jesus' inheritance with Paul Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor, a blasphemer by the blood of Christ and the grace of God. In many ways, God's blessings to Paul were unique to Paul. We can't look at him and say, his life should be our life. He was made an apostle. We will never be made an apostle. He had an office that we will never have. He had a calling that we will never have. Although there was a unique blessing to him, God's blessing to save sinners are personal to each one of us, and they contain the same mercy and grace. If you are here and you are his, you've experienced mercy and grace. And, you, you know, many of us think, well, I didn't need what Paul needed. Oh, man, we all needed it. We all are dead in our trespasses and sins. But by the grace of God, there go I. So that same mercy, that same grace rescues us. And what does that grace and mercy do? It produces faith and love in Christ Jesus. That's what it does. I, I love the fact that, that it produces faith and love in Christ Jesus. It doesn't produce more Pharisees. It doesn't produce uptight people who think that they're better than others. God's mercy and grace produces faith and love in Christ Jesus. Faith. It's by God's grace through faith that we find God's righteousness. We are declared not guilty because of what Christ has done. We're never going to clean ourselves up enough to be good enough. We have the righteousness of God given to us as a gift through faith. Love. It's that love that we find the heart of God. In finding his heart, we are able to love our neighbors as ourselves. Christ Jesus is where we find all of the Father's blessings. Not only that, but not only abounding grace that saves the worst of sinners, abounding grace displayed through sinners. It's through sinners that Jesus is going to display his perfect patience. Through us. There's something going on with us. I love this place. Don't you love this place? A little hot today, but I love this place. You know what one of the things I love most about this place? I know you do. What I love most about this place? It's right behind me. Look at that stained glass window. When you've preached in a gym your whole life, do you not think that that thing is not beautiful? Look at that thing. It's awesome. I love it. Why do I love it? Well, you know, stained glass windows tell a story through broken glass. With the light shining through. We are broken sinners. With the light of Christ shining through us we tell a story and we tell a story we are examples of god's grace you know what the enemy wants to tell you you're not good enough you know what the enemy wants to tell you you're you're a loser you're messing it up and god can't use you you just don't know enough you, you're just you, you fall into the same things 
you're a knucklehead. And the enemy wants to whisper to you, God really can't use you because, you know, you're just, you're just not good enough. And I just think of that window. That's who you are, and that's who I am. We're just broken people that the blood of Christ has redeemed, that the light of Christ shines through. And it shows God's patience to the world that, hey, God can use a knucklehead like Jake's. Oh, my goodness. He can use me. I mean, I, I think one of the things about being a pastor that I long for you to know, just long for you to embrace, is the reality that God has called us to be his ambassadors. He wants to make his appeal through you. He knows who you are. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your brokenness. He's not disappointed in what you are and what you become. He wants you to be holy. He wants you to grow in Christ. Yes, but he wants the gospel to shine through you to display to the world how amazingly patient God is. I'll say it this way. God wants you to be you in love with Jesus. Watch him work. You can do that. Be you in love with Jesus. Then we are examples of God's grace. All we need to be is redeemed sinners in love with him. Not getting over the gospel. Why? For the world to believe in Jesus for eternal life. We are here for the world to believe, for the glory of our great God and for the good of our neighbor in Christ as Savior. And you know who we can help make believe? You know how many people we can convert? You know how many people we can make believe in Jesus? Not a one. But we're here for them. All we have to do is be that window, we be that broken sinner with the light of Christ shining through us, tell the gospel story. Only God can save sinners like us. Only he can make us new. So you have uh, this abounding grace that saves the woke, the worst of sinners. This abounding grace displayed in sinners like us. And lastly, abounding grace that ignites into abounding praise. Verse 17 almost doesn't fit. I mean, you're reading through this, and Paul is saying, hey, I'm so thankful. He starts off with thankfulness. I'm so thankful for the strength that God has given me. He's called me to this. It's incredible. I'm so thankful. And he ends in this glorious doxology and praise. That's how it's all sandwiched together. And he's talking about, I am the worst. I am the woke. God has loved me. Christ has forgiven me. This is what I was. This is who I am in Christ Jesus. And I just have to sing his praises to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you know and love Jesus? You know you do when you just start singing. <laughs> when there's times in your life you just can't get over it. You just got to give him praise. Jonathan Edwards loved this verse, and he's, he's probably the greatest American theologian. Uh, he preached the greatest sermon in American history, sinners in the hands of an angry God. They were grabbing the pew, and they were screaming, tell me what to do to be saved. But it was Jonathan Edwards on this verse who said, never any words of Scripture seemed to me as these words did. He just looked at these ver words. He said, how excellent of a being this is, and how happy to know and love him. The king of ages. What do we know? Leaders come and go. Kings come and go, but our God is eternal. He will forever be. He's immortal. He's never changing. He's never fading. He's never failing. And he's never sinning. He's invisible. There is a hiddenness of God. God is a spirit. He makes himself visible to us through his word and, and through his creation. 
but to the naked eye invisible, the only God, the only God, there is no one, no thing like Him. I mean, this is Him, the God who is, the King of kings, immortal, invisible, the only God. Interesting, when they sang that hymn, God Only Wise, which we started with, great job this morning, Scott. It was uh, probably at one time translated God Only Wise. I think the best way to say it is He's the only God, but He is the only wise God too. Um, to Him be honor, glory forever and ever. For the glory of our great God, He loves sinners like us. For the good of our neighbor, He wants to use us to display His patience. Bilney gave his life, literally, because of the story. And we must give ours as well. Probably none of us will be burned at a stake. Probably none of us will lose much at following Christ Jesus. But we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb to bring glory to God and to tell His story. Whatever God has for you in life, your story does not compare to His story. And He's included us in His greater narrative to display the overflowing grace of God through Christ Jesus. Bask in that story. Bask in your place in that story. And may God use you for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor to tell that story to others. Let us pray. And Father God, we're so grateful for the good news of the gospel that would save the chief of sinners. And God, I, I, I understand a glimpse more of what Paul felt like because the closer we get to you and the closer we get to the light of Christ, the more dirt we see and the more grace that, we're, that is abounding, that we can't believe that you would love sinners like us, but you do. But God, you transform sinners like us. You just transform us so that we could be used to display your glory and your patience in this world. And God, if we get this, we break into praise. We want to praise your name for who you are and for what you've done. May King's Chapel always be a place that is abounding in the grace of God, for the glory of God, abounding in the grace of the gospel. And God, would you be pleased to send us sinners like us who will come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior because we are here. We pray this in Christ's matchless name. Amen.